Hey everybody, this is Daniel Patrick, and this is episode number 121 of the Mandolins and Beer Podcast, brought to you in part by my favorite website, The Mandolin Cafe. How's everybody doing? Hope you're doing good. My guest this week is Paul Duff, and speaking of The Mandolin Cafe, I was checking it out yesterday, and somebody had posted that they had just purchased an A model Duff, a 2020, and so I mentioned, hey, I'm going to be interviewing Paul this evening, and if you have any questions, let me know. And, and he was kind enough to answer those questions. Uh, the one I didn't ask was, um, did he, does he sell an overhole mandolin, and he does sell an F4 on his website? And I'll have links to Paul's website in the description of this podcast and at mandolinsandbeer.com. Um, reminder here, next Monday night, 9 p.m. Eastern, I'm going to do it on Google Meet for my patrons will be the first Mandolins and Beer Hangout. And uh, I'm really looking forward to it. We can get together and meet each other, bring your instrument, show each everybody what you're playing, start a little little community thing here. I'm, I'm, I'm really stoked. I got to see Keith Billick from the Picky Fingers Banjo Podcast. Uh, I got to hang out at one of his, and it was really, really cool. And so uh, I'm looking forward to it. And a little extra thank you to all my patrons. By the way, I want to thank Carlene for signing up. Carlene signed up, and she signed up for the entire year. So thank you so much. You can also sign up. It's only uh, you can start at a dollar a month, or you can do up to ten dollars a month. It all goes to support this podcast. It's greatly appreciated, and you can pay for it a year at a time, like Carlene, and save a little bit of dough. So head on over to patreon.com slash mandolinsandbeer and uh, sign up today. Plus, there's a bunch of instructional videos and different things like that as well. During this interview, by the way, if you've listened to any of the other Luthier interviews that I've done, you're going to hear Paul mention when he built his first mandolin, um, it wouldn't have been possible without Roger Simonoff's The Ultimate Bluegrass Mandolin Construction Manual. And Roger has updated it as of January 2021 to the fourth edition. The fourth edition has 21 full-size fold-out Pro Series F5 construction drawings, two full-size fold-out fixture drawings, 10 full-size peghead inlay drawings, 330-plus color photographs, tap tuning and deflection techniques, color shading and finishing techniques, 150 text pages, and an introduction by Stephen Gilchrist. And it's only $44.95. Start building your first mandolin today. Go to SiminoffBooks.com. And while you're out there on the interwebs, be sure to go to Peghead Nation. Peghead Nation is streaming video courses in mandolin, guitar, banjo, dobro, fiddle, ukulele, and bass. You'll learn bluegrass, old-time, and other styles from some of the most talented players and instructors in roots music. Peghead Nation has got the greatest lineup of mandolin instructors out there. you got Sharon Gilchrist, Joe K. Walsh, Mike Compton, John Reichman, Aaron Weinstein, Marla Feibish, and Chad Manning. Everything from beginner to old-time to advanced in theory They've got it all. Courses include high-quality multi-angle video lessons, downloadable notation and tab, play-along tracks and plenty of tunes and songs to play. Join any of Peghead Nation's video courses now and get your first month for free. Just go to pegheadnation.com and use the promo code MANDOLINBEER, all one word, at checkout. I will be paying particular attention to the Octave Mandolin course that Joe Walsh uh, teaches because... I want to thank Northfield Mandolins. Northfield Mandolins, let's build more than a mandolin together. Check out their website at northfieldmandolins.com. Download their app at mandosummit.app for lots of special performance recordings, demonstrations, and special workshops. And uh, check out their Instagram and check out my Instagram right now, downstairs, acclimating. I've got myself a brand new archtop octave mandolin from Northfield Mandolins, and I couldn't be more excited. I want to thank everybody at Northfield Mandolins. 
Adrian, Peter, and the crew. Uh, I am so excited to uh, crack this thing open, but I'm being patient. Uh, so stay tuned for some uh, social media posts with that. And Pavo Mandolins, dedicated to building for the impassioned player, right there in Austin, Texas. All right, let's get into the episode here. As we're fading in, I'm fading you in with a sample of a song called Cup and Porch. It's by Ethan Sherman. He's got a brand new album coming out on March 4th, Indoor Vistas. Uh, Playing mandolin on this album is the incredible and incredibly nice Thomas Castle. And the album, again, comes out on March 4th. You can pre-order it now. You can listen to the song on all the streaming things, but you can also hear the entire version of this song at the very end of this podcast. So hang out for that. And let's get into the episode here with Paul Duff. Cheers, everybody. To my patrons, hope to see you Monday. my pleasure to welcome to the podcast all the way on the other side of the world paul duff paul how are you i'm really great it's nice to talk to you daniel oh it's great to talk to you um i'll start off with my fandom immediately i i currently own a duff mandolin now number 166 but i yeah i used to go to carter and duff mandolins were like on the list of mandolins that every time i picked a mandolin up it uh, at carter's every time it said duff on the headstock it sounded great man <laughs> and, oh well thank you very much i really appreciate that it's, that's, yeah. the goal is to strive for consistency you know and and just keep trying to improve each time yeah well you're doing it and and uh, i fortunately got one in uh last year i picked one up online and i absolutely love it so um i'm a huge duff mandolin fan and, and a proud owner so thank you for doing this It's exciting for me oh well thank you for supporting the, my passion yeah absolutely um before we get into that so you're in you're in perth yes that's right yeah, yeah. What, so what time is it and what day is it there uh, it's Thursday morning, and it's around about nine o'clock. So we're, I think, if you're in that East Coast area, you're around about thir- we're thirteen hours ahead. Okay, and I may be, I may be flying there in November for some mandolins and beer gigs. Um, oh, fantastic! Yeah. Well, you make sure you contact me. Are you coming west? Uh, I'm not one hundred percent positive on all the details yet, but I'll definitely let you know as soon as I have them. Oh, great. So, do you, and you do some playing. I, I watch some videos of you um, every now and again. You'll you have a, a YouTube channel where when you build some mandolins, you'll do some sound sound comparisons. And you're you're quite the player yourself. Oh uh, well, look, I, I don't know how I got a YouTube channel. I, I put up a few YouTube clips, and suddenly I had a channel. But I, <laughs> I don't know how that works. I'm I sort of you know I, I'm in the computer world, but by no means am I anywhere near totally proficient. But yeah, I, 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 I sort of just, a lot of people ask for a bit of a sample of something and, and uh, especially if it's a, a new model like the two, new two point or something like that, they just want to hear how it sounds. So it's, uh, I've had a few unusual orders recently and, and uh, people are interested to hear how different they sound and you know, in the guitar world as well. Oh, right, right. Yeah, because you, you build guitars also. 
I do. Uh, you know, it's still much more prevalent of the of the mandolin world. You know, the family, but I do uh, archtop L5s and. And I did have a customer who was very intrigued about sort of modernising uh, the style O guitar guitar form. And oh, no kidding! Yeah, and that was that was a real uh, talk about making sure you keep your brain active. That was really great. <laughs> you, I, it was way back to the beginning, you know, because it's. I've always loved that design. It was so Victorian and just so totally uncompromising, the style O, and and it really showed. To me, a mandolin company trying to move towards the the guitar world, you know, that was as a transitional. You know, you see a Les Paul in it, you see guitars, you see mandolins. That big walloping scroll is just uh, so. It was great fun to do, and and it was as successful. It, it they, the originals never really sounded that great. They weren't very responsive, but they were way overbuilt, and the the bracing was. Pretty terrible on them. Just, just naive, you know. Uh, um, so it was great to get a hold of one and a chance to build, you know, a sort of modernised version of it. Yeah. Are there pictures of that out there online anywhere? There are pictures there. Um, I think if people, uh, if they want to go on uh, YouTube and just put in Duff Stylo guitar, um, I've, I've got a a friend, very close friend, a great guitar player named Sam who, who plays and he, he, um, he played it and made it sound the way I, I, I never could. So there's, there's stuff out there to see on it. Yeah, I'll put links to it in the, uh, in the description here on the podcast and on my website right. as well. So, so uh, how did you stumble into bluegrass? Uh, they, they, they mentioned it a little bit in your bio there on the website, but I'd love to hear the story about how you first heard bluegrass music and, and, and started off a little bit into this journey here. Well, it, it's, it's sort of, I suppose, a testament to that, that history of bluegrass, you know, a music that was so focused to a single location or a very small location in its creation. Uh, you know, a fella from Rosine, Kentucky, and, and playing out and then coming across this music. But now, you know, as you well know, Daniel, it's become, it's all over the world. Bluegrass music is all over the world. And for me, I didn't get into playing music till I was 19 years old. And I, I really was just, you know, a young fella going along, playing sort of sport and playing footy and things. And, and I wandered into a pub in Fremantle called Clancy's Pub. And I was 19 years old and there was a bluegrass in there, a bluegrass band in there playing. And I literally walked out of there going, I have got to play that music. I had never played an instrument. I had a musical upbringing in terms of, there was a lot of music in my family, all sorts of different music. My brother was a, a fabulous guitar player and so I'd heard him playing guitar, but I really was just, it just hit me like a ton of bricks. You know, they they say when you get bitten by the bluegrass bug, you usually get bitten bad, and I got bitten bad. So I walked out, and the next day I went down to this big music shop and bought a, a fiddle and then tried to impose my noises on the world <laughs> for a few months and then found a, a teacher who just looked at me, the poor man, I just... I asked about a teacher, and look, we're talking um, 1979 in 
Perth, and I can tell you no one knew what bluegrass was. It was very difficult to find any information. There was no internet. And um, the, the shop just gave me the name of this fellow who was obviously a classical teacher, and he just I knocked at the door and he looked at me and his heart just sank when he saw this 19-year-old. <laughs> I could tell. <laughs> and, and he sort of, oh, come on in, you know. But but the fiddle player from that band, uh, about a, a six or seven months later, I kept going to their shows, you know, watching their shows. And he said, well, look, I'll, I'll show you a few things. And then very gracefully, he said after about a year, he said, you know, the mandolin is tuned the same as the violin. And and I started to play mandolin because, you know, the the, the discipline required to play fiddle is is so high. And, and I think it would be an easier start the discipline required to at least get something out of a mandolin. So, and I'm very thankfully did because it, I just fell in love with it, just totally in love with mandolins and bluegrass music. The fiddle frightened. Like I had, I think I have a better chance of flying a plane than I do learning a fiddle. And I already know one hand's worth of finger positions, but that bow is. Oh yeah, it's. Yeah. I just don't get it. <laughs> Yeah, I know, and it, there are so many disciplines, and I just, re- even at that that young age, I remember my back hurting because my technique was so bad. <laughs> 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 now it hurts for other reasons, but I tell you what, it was just, I felt like I'd been set in glue. <laughs> oh my gosh. So what was, the, uh, what was the first model mandolin that you got? Well, um, being, you know, being very... Um, careful about how I check my progress. I went for the most difficult design on the planet. So the first instrument I built was an F5. Um, yeah, but it, that's where the building sort of started. You know, I had, I think it was an Ibanez little A5 mandolin and quite a good mandolin. Once again, the, the, the availability of instruments, I mean, I, I think even now, you know, for, for people generally, even in the States, Boy, what a what a choice of instruments people have, you know, in the guitar world too. But in the mandolin world, you know, there is so much more to pick from. Where you've got very cheap instruments right up to incredibly expensive instruments, and you can really p- progress through the money that you need to to perhaps move up. In those days, you either had a very very cheap instrument or you had a quite an expensive one and then a really expensive one so there was just nothing to be had so I I had a friend who was getting into um, playing as well and um, he had another friend and they had bought some wood from somewhere and decided that they were going to use the Roger Simonoff book to make an F5 mandolin and the other friend pulled out so I said well I'll buy his wood and we, it took me a year to do it, but I built an F5, and I was able to use it. it. It gave me an instrument that sounded better than the one I had, and um, it was quite an experience. Talk about a journey, but but it really started me on this desire. I just fell in love with the idea of of building that thing and having something tangible at the end to play. Had you had any work woodworking uh, in your in your past before that? No, no. I mean, I did woodwork at high school and stuff like that. Um, but really, no. It, I'm pretty handy with my hands. But but it's amazing. Um, 
what you can get through when you just take your time and and think about things. And it's quite interesting because, you know, building an instrument like anything is a process. There are There's a series of steps and stages that you have to go through. And when you go through each of those stages and you have experience doing it, then you learn about what you need to get done. But when you're doing it the first time, you know, I remember sitting and contemplating particular stages of that first build for weeks and weeks thinking, oh, this is going to be difficult. This is, you know, and just thinking about it. And then it was turned out to be easy or easier than I thought. And then there were other stages I thought, well, that shouldn't be too hard. And then it was locking me down for a month trying to get it done. What so obviously you know with all these years of experience before before we get to you know where you are now with building it but at that point when you first built that one what was that what was that sticking point or the one that you thought oh this shouldn't be so, so tough and then like you said took a month to uh to get it right oh I think you know things like the neck joint um, such a crucial part of the entire build for any instrument. Um, it was simplified in that process. It wasn't a dovetail then. It was a big open V. But just the concept of that and the angles, you know, there are three different angles to contemplate in that thing. So that that really locked me down. I thought I would, I thought I would really spend a lot of time on the on the carving of the plates, which in in that particular book used a sanding disc, which just created amazing amount of dust, but. It was a case of reading that and going, wow, that's really complex. You know, it's thicker in the middle and it graduates out to the edges and and then I've got to get some kind of gauge to measure it. And um, I think you just have to remember there was just nothing there, even for folks in the States. You know, the amount of material now is incredible on building, but it was a case of this is going to be really difficult. But then I realized that I did it and it, it was okay Obviously, it wasn't what I would do now, but it was done enough and and in a very naive way, but it was done in that it worked as the basic concept of what it was meant to do. So it worked at a a much cruder level than what I would do now, but it still worked and did the job. So that was actually really, really scary, but turned out to be perhaps less so once I'd been through it once. Was it tough to find... The tools, because again, you're you're talking pre-internet, and I would imagine, uh, yeah. yeah, some of the things that you would have to use to build a mandolin aren't isn't something that's carried at the the local hardware store, no matter where you live. Well, that's right. I mean, I think one of the one of the good things about that particular book is it helped someone like me in that situation get by with very few tools. So he didn't have any carving planes, you know, round bottom planes and violin building planes. He used a sanding disc on a drill press. And and you carved using that rubber disc with a sanding pad on it. Um, so that allowed someone without the tools to do it. And then obviously as you go along, um, then you realize there are the better ways to do it. And, you know, you couldn't just pop on a computer and, and say, well, how are other people doing it? You really had to either find books, um, uh, ask people and 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 try and learn from experience. You know, building that way, it really did have its benefits 
because there was nothing else. So you really did. It's a cliche, but you know, the school of experience, you, you learn lessons doing that, that particular way. Be, uh, you, you never ever forget them. You know, you do not forget mistakes <laughs> right. and you learn what works because mistakes are costly in time and effort and stuff. So it, it, that way, I think it was, a, it was a benefit doing it such, in such a crude manner that really did help. Were there other luthiers nearby that you could consult with, like in, in your hometown or nearby that you could go and talk to? Um, no. Wow. I did go very early days to um, a, a, a man who's still a friend of mine, um, Rad. He, he's a great guy. He's a very pragmatic person, and he... He was working for um, a guitar builder and repairman, so they did they did builds and repairs. and And his name is Jeff Brayshaw, and everyone calls him Rad. And he actually was the type of guy. You know, some people are difficult to talk to, and Rad was just very very open. He was a repairman, but he would just help me through, saying, you know, he always said, look, it's not it's not it's not a mystery, do this and try that and work this way. And that really helped me. You know, it, it gave me an idea of, okay, it's not, uh, it's not magic. Just try and work out the process or do this and you'll find that will work and keep going from there. So that was great. And, and later on, a, a year or two, very quickly, I can't remember how quickly I, I heard of Stephen Gilchrist. And, you know, Steve is a really good friend of mine now and a very, um, uh, just an amazingly skilled craftsman, but also a very nice fellow in that he took the time to answer the stupid questions and concerns <laughs> of a young guy just starting out. And Steve, I, I, I tell him, I've told him this several times, he, he doesn't realise it, but he has been my mentor my entire building life because... The quality of work. Now, Steve, yeah, he lives in the same country. Unfortunately, he lives in Victoria, which is about, you know, San Diego to uh, Charleston. Oh, <laughs> <That's> yeah. The... <laughs> and um, also in those days being a young guy, I didn't have fare for an airfare to go and see him. So my first trip, I built a mandolin and... I got on a bus. I actually wrote a letter to him and said, oh, you know, might be coming over to Melbourne. Um, would it be okay to come by to Warrnambool and say hi? Desperately hoping he'd say, sure, you know, that, that's fine. And he said, yeah, sure, that, you know, if you're coming by. And well, I bought that bus ticket straight away. And we're talking <laughs> a three-day journey across the Nullarbor Plain, which is a desert uh, it's a long trip wow. and it's a tiring trip, um, but I got on that bus as soon as I could and then I hired a car in Melbourne and then drove back because you have to basically get the bus to Melbourne and then get another, hire a car and get, or get on the train actually and go two hours west again, backwards. And uh, boy, I just learned so much and he was so giving of his time and always has been. Oh, that's so great. You know, I met him, I'm actually interviewing him next week. And, um, oh, great. Yeah, I got to meet him back in Nashville and right at the end of 2019, too, and couldn't have been nicer. <laughs> I was at Carter. Yeah. 
and uh, great sense of humour, oh. really funny guy, and and what a craftsman, you know, and and uh, he has been nothing but supportive and answered my you know naive questions, and even uh, a lot of the times, you know, he's always he's always said, you know, there's there's a big difference between. I just preempt this. Some people are quite. It's funny when you go through that process of trying to learn to build. Some people are a little bit edgy about telling you things. I don't understand it myself. I I, I never have worried about that, and they get a bit sort of um, oblique in the way they answer a simple question. Steve has always been very very upfront and said, "Well, you do this." And I think I remember chatting to him when we were both in Nashville one time. I said, you know, it was so helpful. And he goes, well, there's a big difference between knowing how to do something and being able to do it. You know, and and why why not give the information? You know, why not help someone? Why not tell them how to do something? Because you know, the world can use more mandolins and. Uh, yeah, I know how an engine works, but I could never build one. So he's and, and he's wonderful because he's he's always when I needed the push, you know, I was asking about French polishing and all that kind of stuff. He said, "You know what? You're just going to just have to jump in there because it's different for everybody. You're just going to have to jump in the deep end of the pool there and start swimming." <laughs> Uh, he told me some basics and helped me with that. So, but he said, no, you're just going to have to go through that little process. And he was right because you learn so much by going through the process. Well, it goes back to, like you said, like making mistakes. A smart person learns yeah. from them, you know, and you, can, you, you have to make mistakes. I mean, nobody goes through, you know, their lives not making any mistakes. I mean, that's exactly how we learn, <laughs> you know. Very, very true. I say it to my daughter all the time. And... And you know what? We're so very scared of making mistakes and we're very scared of our children being upset by making mistakes. But we all look back to our own childhood and go, wow. (laughs) We've all got a wow story. Like, oh, yikes. Yeah, for sure. But you learn from it. So after you built that first mandolin, now were you still were you still playing music? Were, what, what was like the yeah. what was the plan at this point? Did you want to be a musician? Did you want to be a luthier? Like what was what was your outlook well, for the future? Well, it's quite interesting. When I was nineteen years old, I was in, I was in the second year of my I was uh, at teachers' college. I was learning to be a high school teacher, starting to do that, and and I I did do that, and I I was teaching. But so from the very ver- first point of my teaching career even before I was building instruments I wanted to play music and I wanted to build instruments even though I'd started teaching Um, and I just I'd finish one and then I started to build another one and I built another one and then people said look I'll buy that one off you if you if you um, build it and I did that but I I taught for three years and did that, and then I resigned. And um, I had been to the States for six weeks. I wanted my big adventure was going to the States for six weeks in 19, uh, the Christmas 80, 81. And I wanted to see as much as I could. And a friend of mine who was at Teachers College with me said, I have a friend in Lexington, Kentucky. And uh, I said, Wow, 
that's the center of bluegrass music. It's Kentucky. That's bluegrass music, you know. And I went and stayed. I went all around the States trying to see a lot of music, saw every airport in America kind of thing. And and halfway through that trip, I was really tired. He said, why don't you just stay here in Lexington and relax for a few weeks and then, you know, head home. And I really loved it. And then after I taught for three years, I, I resigned and decided I was going to go and live in the States for a bit and just learn a bit more. So I was wanting to play, but I really, in terms of a, a career, I really wanted to look at building instruments. Three years too. That's boy. That's not uh. That's not bad. That's uh. You know, that's a pretty good uh, small amount of time to be like. You know what? Figuring it out and 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 then like just making that big move. That's that's awesome. Well, I think it was it was a, it was a combination of things. I was young enough to be able to do it. Uh, I had no obligations, um, and I really had a passion for it. And I really wanted, I suppose, to get out and see the world. My first international trip was to the other side of the planet you know and and uh, I at least had met people that I knew I could end up at I could go to Lexington and I knew a few people there just to have somewhere to to stay and and just not go in there cold but I really did have a passion about wanting to do it I don't know why you know the dust just got in my blood and and it was so interesting you know there was just so in, such an intriguing thing uh, it really, really grabbed me. How long did you live in the States for? Well, I was, I had a plan, you know, being a young fellow there, I, I, I thought, right, I'll just go and see what happens. And I'd been there a year. Um, I'd written letters um, to various places to see if they wanted to take on someone who would at least have a very basic knowledge and stuff. And, and a lot of people wrote back and said, look, we're just a small factory or stuff like that and, and that was real I could understand that but Flatiron Mandolins Steve Carlson wrote me back and said do you do you use uh, water-based colors I said yeah he said well happy to come on up we're just messing with the idea of using water-based colors so come up to Bozeman Montana and I so I said great and I went I, I went over there and I went back to Lexington and then after a few months, went up to Bozeman. And by the time I got up there, he said, no, we've changed our mind. We're just going to keep using the leather dyes that they've been using. They've been having trouble because leather dyes fade under sun. And um, they'd been putting the mandolins into the shops and, and the colours were fading. But, you know, I was only, I was only there about two, two to three months from memory um, because... The finances were difficult, and Bozeman's a college town, so it's pretty expensive, and I was basically sleeping on a floor of some friends from Lexington who were all... They were, they were ski bums. We have surf bums here, but they were ski bums. They <laughs> yeah. were there for the... And uh, the, just some amazing uh, countryside. I just couldn't believe it. I saw Yellowstone, all sorts of just fabulous things. But I learnt a lot, uh, and Paul Schneider from... Summit Mandolins was the head luthier there, and I just basically stood by his side. And uh, he said, "Yeah, you answered lots of questions." And I did a few jobs around there, and you know they paid me a small amount of money, and that was great. And and I learned a lot. But then it was time to head home, and uh, I got the bus back to Lexington. Another three day must be me. Another three day <laughs> ride in a bus. 
And I was in Lexington for a while uh, and I'd been away about a year. I was thinking to come about coming home and then I went to a party and I met my beautiful wife. Oh, wow, cool. Who's a Lexington girl and uh, we both came back to Australia in 86 and we've been married uh, 35 years this year. Oh, wow, congratulations. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. So at that point, did you get to... um play some like a bunch of mandolins when you were in the states i mean i'm imagining the access to to mandolins was a little bit greater at least than than what you had access to in australia even though it might not have been you know mandolins in the in the 80s probably weren't flying off the shelves but there were there were vastly more mandolins to play um there weren't as many laws to be able to get hold of and that's what i'd already become interested in it's I don't know why. Um, I think because I really love Monroe and I love that sound. I already knew that the, you know, the Lloyd Law is what everyone was trying to emulate. And, and that's what I wanted to see. And I didn't get a chance to see any. I, I may have not been pushy enough or, or you know, really, really knew how to try and find one. But there weren't any hanging in a shop. Um, you grew in guitars was the big place then and I, I went in and, and I remember uh, just meeting guys there and looking around and there were none hanging up well of course they weren't hanging up they were probably upstairs and you had to ask but I didn't know that but you know the, the beauty of Carter Vintage now is you go in and they are there for you to see and if you ask we'll let you play them yeah it's amazing and, and it, it's just incredible and these early days of you know, definitely not Gruen's. They were great. They would let you look at instruments hanging up. But, you know, these were the days of walking into a shop and people going, don't you touch those instruments. <laughs> right. you, know, you want to, what, you want to play them? No, you know. <laughs> right. And it was, it was different. But what I did get to hear was hearing players who had them. You know, I, I, was, I was so lucky into it. Being a, a time when I, I was able to hear Monroe and his band, I was the seldom seen Hot Rise, Stanley, Ralph Stanley, you know, country gentlemen. It was just a fabulous time. And I early on learned about the Station Inn. Oh, yeah. So I don't know if you noticed, but the name of the band that I started with my wife is called Bluegrass Parkway. And for those of listening from the Kentucky area and Tennessee area, Bluegrass Parkway is a, a highway that runs from basically Lexington to meet up at I-65 um, to get you down to, to Nashville. And I, I went through this uh, <coughs> stage really of uh, I spent my time, and it was a toll road then, so I spent my time on Bluegrass Parkway going down to um, the Station Inn to see these great musicians playing at this this amazing little brick box in the middle of a really really rough area uh, that you had to basically dodge um, uh, ladies of the evening and and drug dealers <laughs> to get into. It was just fabulous, and I remember my first trip there was an open night. And I was sitting there and someone walked past me to the stage, brushed by me, and it was Bill Monroe, and I nearly died. It was just unbelievable. And, and I did that 
I did that almost every week, and that's a three-hour drive from Lexington in a 68 Buick LeSabre with a dodgy generator. <laughs> but it was, it was great. I loved it. It was so exciting, and the music was so much. So I was getting to hear instruments, really, really high-quality instruments, and that really focused it. So then you started kind of like, you know, going towards the lore. What what was the uh, process like as you've been as you've been building now? You know, did you did you get finally get your hands on a lore and like get to look at all the specs and measurements and different things like that? Um, well, again, it, was, it was interesting, you know, because um, I I don't know why I well I did because I'd been seeing them. I, I knew that Steve was making to me the closest thing to a lore, and and. I knew that they were fabulous mandolins, even with little experience. And it was just the way that they were made and and the look, the precision and the, sh- the shape. The shapes just looked right. You know, it seems a funny thing to say. You know, it's a pretty obvious shape in F5, but it's the proportions of the shape. And even then, and it's something I've discovered later on, I, I've realized how much your eye becomes attuned to building something. So if you do a particular thing, and it's very much like how ears become attuned for players, you know if something isn't perfectly in pitch. I'm sure you do, mate. If you're playing and you go, there's something not right, and you, you retune, well, you know, I can, look at a, I can look at a scroll on any mandolin, you know, it doesn't matter who's built it, I can look and go, yeah, that's not really right on the money there or that is spot on you know that looks great and it's just being totally attuned to something so i i sort of did get to see some laws and once again there weren't any plans out there where you know now you can get really great access to plans and information but i i had a set of plans but they were pretty ragged ones but then i learned later on you know being able to hold laws and, and, and look a little bit inside them and just get used to, you know, boy, how much should they weigh in your hand? How much, what's the proportion there? Or, gee, that looks totally different to what I imagined it to. You know, the thing that really amazed me, the first Lloyd Law I, I held in my hands, I was amazed at how rough it was. And that's that was a great thing because... It made me realize I'd been, this instrument had been put on a pedestal, you know, it's, it's the golden chalice, it's, it's wonderful, but then when you look at it, you go, okay, well that's, this is an instrument that was made by craftsmen in a factory, and they weren't trying to emulate anyone, they were making mandolins and doing them the best they could to the specs that they were meant to follow, and that really, that really stayed with me actually that that entire thing about things you know there are times there were there were people working there at a particular time and people working at another particular time and as much as you follow a pattern the craft is done by particular people or done in under particular circumstances that make them vary and that variation to me is what creates the interest you know why does this one have a slightly different tone to that? Or why is this one a monster here, um, whereas the others are, have a different balance or something like that? It, it's, it's a really, it's a good thing to keep in mind. You know, you're, you're, you're not 
stamping them out like Tupperware. And you, you try to keep it pretty much as it, looking at the uh, your bio here. I mean, it seems like you try to really keep it to as much at hand as you as you possibly can. I I, I do like that. Um, I do have a pantograph. It's an old pantograph, and and I use that to rough out the outside profiles of the mandolins. That's to save my arms, really. Um, once I do that outside profile there's still another hour of carving on that outside profile just to get it the way I want it to look. And then I take the insides out by hand because I just like to keep my hands, I want my hands all over that plate, be it the top or the back plate. Um, and I think, you know, every piece of wood is different and the, 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 the ability to be able to just feel how that top or back is developing as you have it in your hands as you're carving is just important to me and it's not everyone's way of doing it but it's it's my way of doing it and as I get a bit older I can understand you know uh, seeing seeing that and getting it more accurate so I don't have to spend an hour and then maybe taking the insides out but I still do them by hand and I, you know these big old arch top guitars boy there's some acreage in there and my <laughs> my hands <laughs> yeah, I, are starting to feel it <laughs> man i can't imagine holy moly um if like if if you were uninterrupted time frame if you were to build a mandolin right from scratch um you know taking out that you have maybe a batch to build but if what, so what's the time frame roughly for a mandolin to be built in your world well, I do, I do batches of four, um, and I leave, I leave four months for that batch. Um, it's sort of a, it's a better use of time to, if you're setting up a process, you can do four, and it's different for everyone again. You know, um, I, you have to find that balance between um, being able to get the job done and, and fatigue factor, so you don't want the fourth one in each time to be a little bit rougher because you're tired. So for me, it's it's four mandolins in a batch, and I leave four months. I'm always running a little bit late. It should be five, <laughs> but I make it. I overlap a bit, you know. With the French polishing, you've got to you've got to leave four months, uh, four weeks of at least for curing and you know getting that on there. So I'll overlap and start another batch during that that time. Um, but hey, some make you some make you work a little harder, and some let you go through on a on a free pass. They they're all a little bit different. Have you ever gotten like to the end of one and just been like, "This is just not up to snuff"? Or is there a spot in there at some point where you're like, "That nah, that start again"? Oh look, I suppose there'll be you know in terms of making parts or elements, there might be something that goes wrong. In a, in a particular part, but not an entire instrument, no. I've, I, I've, if there's something you're hearing early on, then you're going to change that. You're going to work with it, or this needs this particular um, avenue of build, and I need to vary what I'm doing here. But not really, and, and it's part of that idea of developing a process and developing consistency, because that's, I learned very early on, uh, probably from Steve as well, you know, this idea of if you're building something 
and and someone hears one of your instruments and says, I really like that. Could you build me something? If you build something and it is totally different, whether it be look, feel, or the tonal qualities, one, it's not very fair, and two, that's not going to help you in terms of trying to get your instruments out there to people. You know, there's an element of trust there that you're going to come up with the goods, and that's where the pr- the pressure is. Sure. Mm, you've got to have consistency. I, I solicited a few questions in, in, in a great, cool turn of luck. I, I go to the Mandolin Cafe website, I mean, as much as I go to any website every single day, and uh, somebody just bought a uh, 2020 Duff A5, and so I was like, oh my gosh, I'm, oh, yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm actually interviewing Paul today if anybody's got any questions. So I did, I did get a couple, couple quick questions here. I thought I'd run by in kind of. Sure. Yeah. So the first one is from a gentleman named Josh, and he just wants to know if, he's, if there's been any major changes along the way to achieving your current tone slash style. I think, look, in, in the bigger picture, <clears throat> there, there are very few... Um, uh, you know, uh, earth-shattering moments where suddenly you do something and everything changes. It's in the big picture. It's usually um, evolutionary rather than revolutionary. You know, you develop <laughs> ideas, skills. But but for me, there was um, about two late 2015 or so, early 2016. I really got a chance to look inside a law and it was all to do with the dimensions of the tone bars <clears throat> and being, you know, early days, I think most people would be early days. I was a, a bit more conservative. So my tone bars were a little bit bigger. Um, thinking about this, you know, you don't want this box to collapse. So very early days, you're worried about the thing just holding together. So, you know, you tend to overbuild and you're fine from there. But, I'd had some plans and they'd had stated specific um, dimensions for the tone bars, you know, and I'd been going along doing that and, and it was working and they were sounding fine and that. And then I saw inside Alloyd Law and I also got access um, to a couple of Steve's mandolins where I could really look inside and notice how small the tone bars were. And and for me that I I changed straight away. No kidding. The very next batch I changed straight away, and it just was really a, a, a big difference, really big difference. And I knew that that difference had worked because the very first batch after that I was in the states, and I was down at one of the early um, mandolin camp, the Monroe mandolin camps in Owensboro. And uh, Mike Compton was down there, and and I'd met Mike, I think a few months before, and he said, "Yeah, come on, have a look next time you're there." And and he played one of my instruments before, earlier one, and he played it. He said, "Oh yeah, that's that's nice, you know," and being very polite. And I took one of these instruments, and I I basically uh, had it in a case, and I was delivering it to a friend of mine in Lexington, and. Um, he played it and he played it and he sort of does that thing that Compton does where he goes all over that fingerboard just listening to tone and he put it down and went off to do something but he kept coming back and he kept playing it and playing it and, playing it. and I thought, okay, well that sparked his interest and and that I think was the start of what has become a, a 
an incredibly important and, and wonderful relationship. I, I've been incredibly lucky, you know, having a relationship with Steve Gilchrist and, and Mike Compton has taught me so much, so much about tone and quality of playing. Um, it's, it's been an amazing thing. So those tone bar sizes were really important and that was around about 2016 and I just, I think that re- I, could, I could hear it myself, the, the, the difference. That's not saying the ones before 2016 don't work, they do, <laughs> especially when they're played and they're really well played in. They just work in a different way. Yeah, you um and 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 mutual relationship I think between you and Mike because his Rotten Taters album, which I did an interview with him right when that came out, it's right when this podcast kind of started. I think you were a big influence in telling him to uh, record an album while he was in Australia. In the wee midnight hours, just before the break of day. In the wee midnight hours, just before the break of day. I was. I, I'm. I'm sort of proud in 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 saying. I, I think I'll. Along with the banjo player in our band, we're both good friends of Mike's, and he was in Australia. Mike loves Australia, and he was here, and he was in a duet at the time, and he'd been let down at a particular gig pretty badly in that the person didn't show up, and he had to do it by himself, and he was very frustrated about it. And I said, Mike, you can do this as a solo, and he was he was a bit, oh, I'm not too sure. And I can imagine, I mean... Boy, doing a solo gig, playing mandolin, just you and singing. And I think we've all gone on to hear what fabulous backup Mike can do, apart from his great lead playing, of course. He's a great singer, very underestimated singer. And uh, and I sort of pushed him a bit to do some gigs here as a solo. And he sat down and thought about it and went through the material that he could do. And you know that great blues background that Mike has? Um, there's tons of great material. And, and then um, I, said, I said, you know, just, just talk. Just tell the stories that you tell me and, and you know, you, you talk about uh, for each song. And it's just a fabulous act. Uh, well, it's not an act. I mean, it's him and it's really wonderful and it works well. And he wasn't sure about Australia. I said, they will eat it up. You know, it was a, it's the old cliche. I said, Mike, you could read the phone book and people will love it. <laughs> right. He just tells the story in a beautiful way. He has that. Now that he's got the mandola, he also, it's pitched a little closer to his voice, but he also does a lot of wonderful um, old tenor guitar backup stuff on it to his own singing that works really well yeah it's such a great album and it gives him a little bit more control he's in control of he's not relying on anyone um and at that stage that just works for him and it's a it's a great show and it's very very different so people are always intrigued and it's always interesting I got a uh, got another question here. This, this is signed by Z, and they wanted to know your thoughts on tone and attack difference, speaking of tone bars, that you hear between tone bars and the X-braced instruments. 
Okay. X brace works really well, but I've I've gone from various things. I was doing X brace earlier on as the standard spec. Um, I think up until around about 2003 or so, and then I changed back to tone bars. X brace for me with my instruments because I think it does vary depending on the builder. I think you're going to get um, I sort of call it really in your face right up there in your face straight away from the moment they're strung up and um, bright but then as they play in they, they become a little bit more open sounding and I hate to use the term woody because they're made of wood for goodness sake but <laughs> a bit more um, just open and, and perhaps um, expansive sound rather than the focus of tone bars. The tone bars, however, um, have a lot of focus and power and project. The X-Brace ones do, but I think the tone bars, they develop their tone a little bit further. They'll keep developing longer. I think X-Braces will play in quickly, um, get that sort of open sound, and they'll develop. They keep developing, but I think the tone bars will more noticeably develop. But early days, X braces, not the brash is the wrong term, but it, it's right up there in your face straight away. Um, and, and it sort of is in keeping with uh, the difference between F5 and A5. For years, I was trying to sort of work out why. You know, these are, these are instruments that I, I place the tone bars in exactly the same place. I carve them the same, yet... There's just something a little bit different about the tone and projection of an A5 as opposed to an F5. And I finally sort of worked it out that because of the positioning of the F-holes, I, I build my A5s modelled on that Griffith A5, the, the only Lloyd Law signed A model. Um, so the, the F-holes are a little bit forward of centre. And what that does is the bridge is forward of centre just a tad along to line up with those F holes and there's a bigger open area behind the bridge and and that open area behind the bridge means that top plate can really move and if you play a big chord on an A5 of mine it's really what I call expansive it really blossoms and blooms and and then it retracts and F5 will be less so but it projects further because because of the shape of the instrument, because, you know, an A5 is not an F5 without the points or scroll. <laughs> right. It's a wider instrument. It's a longer instrument. The body, the body itself is longer. Um, so it, it has a big area because of the way the tone bars are going and their positioning on that top. It has a bigger area of no bracing, no restriction behind the bridge, and, and that's, that really opens up the sound and you know so they can both really do that focus chop and and the punchiness but i think i think the a5 is more expansive and the f5 is more focused and and that is also what happens when you do an x brace because an x brace has that you know the, the braces are further out towards the tailpiece they're opened out more so i reckon that's probably why the, the, the X braces can be a little bit more expansive in their in their tone. Awesome. 
And then the last listener question, say listener, but cafe person. And this is the person who actually just bought that, uh, the A model. Right. And they posted just some beautiful pictures. Oh, my gosh. You just, <laughs> the guy, I love your mandolins, man. Um, and uh, their question was, what wood combination do you prefer that gets that great mid-range tone? And do you use hide glue in the construction of your instruments? Okay. Uh, I, my favorite combination um, is is Adirondack spruce for the tops. And really, I just, I always use Adirondack spruce. It just works so brilliantly. I don't have a lot of experience in Engelman, but I find I can get the, the tonal qualities I'm after and variations of using Adirondack. Um, and I love sugar maple. It's a classic Lloyd Law combination. Um, it really gives you that mid-range um, power is always there. Now, I also like red maple. Um, it's a great wood. I think red maple is interesting. You, you have to make sure you select your red maple um, personally um, because red maple varies. You can get red maple that's like sponge and you can get red maple that is like concrete. It, it does have a big variation, whereas sugar maple is always hard. It's just a consistently hard timber. So Mike Compton's F5 of mine that he plays is actually, it's actually red maple, but it's incredibly hard red maple. So it has the characteristics of sugar maple. Um, but, but for me, you know, you're talking about tone. Where I, when I'm carving and when I'm, doing the top, I'm really aiming to get power and, and almost uh, an expansive mid-range power in there. So when I'm stringing it up, you know, from the open D string up to the, the G note, the fifth fret on that D string, I want those to be the really the most dominant when it's first strung up. Everything else comes up to it and will balance to it, but that's the mid-range and that's a really important, you get that strong and then the foundation for the entire instrument is set and everything with, after playing in will come up to that and there's the balance that comes with it. And in terms of, uh, of glue, I don't use high glue, I, I use tight bond glue. Um, it works, it's a good glue and for me it just allows me to work at the pace that I like to work at. Um, I, I don't have a lot of experience in using hide glue at all. Um, you know, tight bond works very well, has all the characteristics of being able to take stuff apart as well as having a really good strong bond. Man, thank you for answering those. That's great, man. Yeah, thank Pleasure. Do you have a, uh, do you have a mandolin that, um, that was like, like the, the one that you played and always think about when you're building your mandolins outside of your own, if it was ever one that you just played and was like, oh my gosh, this is, I'm, I'm always searching to find, achieve this sound with my mandolins. Um, probably, I think there was, yeah, there, there, there've been a couple of laws. I mean, there's not, not one particular one that I aim for. I so said, that is the, that is the, the one that I'm really aiming. There've been a couple of laws I've really liked the sound of but you know they all vary people say the law sound but you know every one of them is different they've all got particular characteristics um 
there is there's one a friend owns uh, down near Lynn Dudenbostel's way, uh, a fella called Joe, and that's a great sounding mandolin. I really like the way it looks. Um, there, I tell you what, some of the instruments that are really wonderful are the unsigned laws. There were there are one or two of those. Um, um, I'm thinking of um, Aubrey Haney's unsigned law that I don't think he owns anymore. That had a great, great sound to it. Really good balance, rich, full. Um, had a neck like a baseball back, unfortunately, but, but tonally beautiful, beautiful. But there's not one, you know, there's not mm-hmm. one specific. It, it's a range of, it's a range of uh, strong points in several you know that that uh, I think Mike's Gilchrist is a fabulous man. It sounds like the entire damn tree. You know, it just sounds like a log. It is great, and what? No wonder it does. I mean, this is a this is the beauty of it. You know, you can give them you can give a mandolin a new mandolin to Mike, and he'll have that thing sounding four months old in about fifteen minutes. You know, it's got a great right hand. Really, you know, F5s and F-hold instruments like to be worked hard and uh, they just respond to it. And I think, you know, that I think it's 536 is uh, is Mike's Gilchrist and that's a great sounding mandolin and that's just got it. What number are you up to for uh, mandolins? Um, the current batch I'm working on now, I think the the top number in that, I think, is 273 or 1. Wow. Nice. It's funny. I, I think, oh, that's not, you know, I've got to, I want to get it up there. Not that number is important, but you think, oh, Jesus. Then I, I was once in a room where there were 12 of them, and I looked at it, and I just, I felt so tired just looking at it. <laughs> 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 I thought, wow, that's a lot of work. <laughs> <laughs> I can't imagine. I can't imagine. Oh, my gosh. This has been so great. I really appreciate you taking the time. And oh, Look, I've really enjoyed it. Any chance to talk mandolins to people, I, I'm, I'm up for it. I love it. I, I got two more quick questions for you here. Actually, yeah. I'm going to do three because um, a lot of times I'll ask a, a, a different one when they're players. But the, the, do you have a favorite fiddle tune to play when you pick up a mandolin? Um. Not look, it varies on what I'm currently doing. I really love Louisville Breakdown. Mm-hmm. Uh, I really like Panhandle Country is just great. Yeah. I love that Monroe stuff, you know, like when Butch Robbins and Wayne Lewis and Kenny and I think Mark Hombre was the bass player. That 1981 stuff, love all the fiddle playing. Anything Kenny does is great. But I really love, yeah, Panhandle Country is a great tune. Um, yeah, a lot of them. It just varies on what I happen to be trying to get together myself. You know, you, you come across things and like them. And uh, do you have do you have a favorite beer? As I said before, anything that's cold and anything that's wet. Um, <laughs> but I do. There's a there's a Tasmanian beer called Cascade Premium. Uh, but I do. I'm really actually. I love Guinness. I'm a, I'm a big Guinness fan, and I've sort of been getting into those dark ales. I think, you know, the dark ales are good because it's just a little bit more character. I'm not a big fan of IPAs because I think 
Oh, I just they're trying to do too much. There's too much citrus or something in them, and they work every now and again. But I, I'm a bit more of a a dark ale man. I um I I have a. Uh... Uh, like a special place in my heart for Fosters, only because when I first started playing music in bars and I was uh, under 21 and um, you would get one drink a set and the biggest beer you could get was a Foster's can. <laughs> well, I'll tell you something. The only reason you would ever drink that is because you're getting it. In fact, even if you're getting it for free, you wouldn't drink that. I'll give you the tip. <laughs> No one has drunk Foster's in this country for about 30 years, and I don't think you can get it. They don't sell it here. It's awful. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I don't even know if I remember the taste of it. I just remember it was like the size of an oil can, and you were just like, I'll yeah. take that. Yeah, that's right. It was, of, it was quantity over quality for sure, and exactly. probably a very good thing you don't remember the taste of it. Yeah. <laughs> and then uh, since I'm interviewing him uh, uh, next week, do you have a question for Steve Gilchrist? Um, well, like, uh, oh, geez, I've, I've, I've already asked so many questions. Of, <laughs> yes, my question to Steve is when, when things loosen up over here, when is he coming over to visit? And we'll go down south and, and have a look down in the southwest at uh, beautiful wine country down there and, and lots of lovely timber, Australian timbers just to look at. Well, Paul, I, I, you have given me literally hours a day of joy since I since I purchased this duff uh, last year. I mean, I literally there was one day since I've owned it two weeks ago. I think it was that was the first time I had not played that mandolin um, since I had bought it for at least two hours a day. I didn't even take it out of the case because I was sick. I love 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 that mandolin and so thank you for building such beautiful instruments well I, that's that's beautiful and I, I seriously i want you to know that it, it it's that's the biggest reward you know i tell people it's the the biggest reward for me it's about it's about giving you know a bit of musical joy and and a bit of legacy for when i'm gone you know someday some young fella might pick one up and go who is this guy um but it, uh, it's a huge investment by people, a huge investment of trust and finances, and, and I always am very aware of it. So when someone says they love it so much, it really does you know, mean everything because that's what you're trying to do. That's the, you know, the biggest goal is to have someone love what you've made and get enjoyment out of it. So I thank you for it. Yeah, thank you. And as promised, here's the entire version of Cup and Porch by Ethan Sherman. Links to pre-order this are in the description of the podcast and at mandolinsandbeer.com. Cheers, everybody. Enjoy. Enjoy. 